Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a Brothers Creed podcast where we talk about motivation, experiences, and exploring what the world has to offer. We're the Thomas Brothers, and I'm Ethan. And I'm Jared. And today we have our first repeat guest on, Matt Oviatt, who owns, uh, he is a real estate professional. Uh, he comes and talks to us specifically about real estate investing. He owns a company that does fix and flips, wholesales. Uh, he told he tells, talks about in the episode how he his marketing budget alone is like $40,000 a month. So he he's serious into real estate investing and finding those leads. And then uh, he talks about how he turns through, he puts them through a sales funnel uh, and, and just lots of different great tips and, and ideas and strategies. And he talks about how he got into it. So this is a great episode for anybody that's even remotely interested in real estate. So uh, stay tuned. It's going to be a great one. All right, let's do it. You can't climb the ladder of success with your hands in the pocket. We will not go quietly into the night. They tell me you're a man with true grit. I am the one who knocks. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever! That's how winning is done. All right. Uh, today we're here with our first repeat uh, guest here on the on the podcast, Matt Ovia. Thank you so much, Matt, for uh, taking a little bit of time out of your day to talk with us again. Heck yeah, Ethan, Jared, honor to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problem. On, on yes. our uh, on our first episode together, we talked about uh, goal setting and and improving ourselves in that way. Um, you're a, a man of. Uh, many talents. And so we wanted to get you back on and, and talk a little bit more about the, the real estate world. I know that's kind of uh, w- where you're in right now and, and in your business and your life, um, really going hard uh, with with this real estate and different aspects of that. And Jared and I uh, are always curious about uh, real estate and talking about it and everything. We thought it was a great opportunity to, to get somebody who knows significantly more than we do about it. And uh probably most of any listeners out there and um, uh, just ask a bunch of questions. Awesome. It's yeah. my, uh, it's my favorite topic. So uh, it's going to be fun. Well, thanks for taking the time again. And uh, you know, I, I guess maybe a good place to start off would be, can you tell us about maybe your journey to real estate? How'd you get started? Uh, what, what has your, what your journey been? Yeah. So I, I read a book when I was in high school. In fact, I remember I was sitting on the beach at a family vacation and uh, the book is called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, written by Robert Kiyosaki. Most people that I know have have read it and it introduced new concepts, like new ideas to me that I had never heard of before. And of course, he talks about real estate in there. And I I had grandparents that had a rental property right next door to them. And I always mowed their lawn on Saturdays. I'd go and mow their lawn. Me and my brother go down and um, do their lawn all summer. And I remember thinking back then as a you know junior high, high school kid, like, so they, your neighbors pay you guys every single month to live there. Like, why don't they just own their own house? Like, why would they pay you to live in yours? Like, it was like this, kind of weird like, concept to me because I didn't know anything, right? It was just like an entirely new thing to me that I was trying to wrap my head around and understand. But I think that was kind of the the embryonic phase for the me seed, where I just kind of got started and the wheel started going for me. And, um, and then I served a Latter-day Saint mission for two years. And when I got back, got married and then rather than buying a house my wife and I bought a, a duplex uh, which we still own today and that that was kind of driven from you know those uh, those early thoughts that I had watching my grandparents and then reading that book yeah that was going to be uh, one of my first questions too was uh, what was your your first investment property I guess it was that that duplex that duplex yep I Bought it for 152500 We lived in one side. The rent at the time, we're getting $600 a month, $595 for a, for a two-bed, one-and-a-half bath with a garage. Um, I still own it today, actually. Uh, Which probably, probably worth significantly farming. more today. <laughs> it is. Yeah, now it's worth between 450 and five. Wow. 
Yeah, and that, so, that and the rents uh, are the, the rent the rents have doubled. And sorry, yeah, the rents. Are yeah, I was gonna say the now. that rent to that you know five ninety five a month was probably not that far off from what your mortgage payment was. Actually, my mortgage was it was right around a thousand dollars with my taxes and insurance escrowed. So you know, by the time I was paying the utilities and had a vacancy loss and doing some repairs, I was essentially paying more than six hundred dollars to live in my own side. But fortunately, I, I stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Luckily. So what you was it yeah. six hundred bucks per side you were paying? Uh, the, the well, I guess your side you were not paying anything. You were living in one. You're side. living in one yeah. side, and the other side you were getting six hundred bucks off that one. Yep, yep, you got it. Cool. Yeah. How long so ago? Was how, a, if you don't mind me asking, how long ago was that? I don't mind at all. <laughs> that was in two thousand and two, the fall of two thousand two. And in fact, you guys, this is kind of funny. I was talking to my wife about this the other day. To show how little I knew about it, we came back from our honeymoon and then we moved into the to the one unit. And it was in October, so it was starting to get cold at night. And the electricity was off and there was no hot water. And I remember calling my dad. I was like, Dad, I don't know what to do. We don't have any lights and there, the water is freezing cold. Like, what? <laughs> what has happened to our, to our unit? Like what, what went wrong? And he said, well, did you call and put the utilities in your name? I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. I knew so very little. Right. So but looking back on it now, I think, you know, like rather than figuring out every single thing, it's always best to just get started, just go. You know, the just don't get stuck in the analysis paralysis and feel like you're an expert before you make the first step. Just do it and you figure it out. Yeah, totally. So is that when you got out of college, were you, I, I don't remember the, I'm trying to remember back of my knowledge of you, but I don't think you were in real estate full-time at that point, but maybe just dabbled or were you in it full-time at that point to now? I've pretty much been in it full time until now. Yeah. So, um, we moved into that duplex. I was going to school at the time and then I met a, a buddy and we decided to buy a property, um, in Ogden 509 East third street is the address to that one. We bought this thing and we screwed everything up and somehow we made $15,000 on it, which we split. Yeah. But at the time 7,500 bucks is like, wow, did that really just happen? Like, I got to do more of this. And so yeah. that was the, that was the beginning. Was that, um, <clears throat> what was the strategy with that? I mean, is, is this, cause I know there's different ways of investing into real estate, whether it's wholesaling or flipping or buying long-term rentals yeah. or, you know, there's all different types of stuff. We've, we've had people on, um, that do more short-term rentals, Airbnb types. Um, yeah. I know your first one was at duplex. Um, yeah. did you, kind of focus in one area as you were growing the business or growing your, your, your portfolio, or did you kind of jump all over the board? You know, Ethan, I just didn't know very much, honestly, for me, it was just, uh, I just want to figure it out. If there's a way to make money here, I'm going to like hustle down that road. And if there's another way over here, I'm going to hustle down that road. So, so that for that five Oh nine East third street with a buddy, that was a flip. Um, but I knew all along that, you know, going back to rich dad, poor dad, that yeah. being able to create cash flow is really what creates lifestyle. So I knew that I wanted to accumulate rental properties, but fixing and flipping was going to be my vehicle to be able to create a rental portfolio. Cause I could turn that cash and park it in, into, into buy and hold properties. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that, uh, one of the interesting pieces nowadays is, and when we spoke about the goal episode that you said that your current business, you kind of do all of the above. You do wholesaling, you do flipping houses, you do, uh, it sounds like you do both of those things in a way to find the, really the buy and holds and then invest in those buy and holds so that you can get that portfolio of generating cash for your business. Is that kind of the strategy of your business? It is. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's really my strategy with with what I do with the profits that my fix and flip slash wholesale company makes. They get parked into buy and hold properties. So over the years, I've just been accumulating properties and creating a, a portfolio of, of rentals. So do you have like, uh, you know, when you're kind of new in, in real estate, a lot of times they'll say, well, what's your goal? What, what amount do you want to get to? And when you were early in your career and you're saying like, oh, you, you realize the power of this monthly cash flow, did you set goals for yourself to say, I would like to have, you know, $4,000 a month and this is what I need to do. Uh, have you made any types of goals like that in the past or, or, or do you, you know, just question about that. For sure I did. Yeah. And, and it's funny looking back on it. I remember back in 2006, I remember thinking if I could create 10,000 a month in cash flow, I'm going to have it made. <laughs> yeah. Which was a good goal at yeah. the time because that made me reach, you know, but then as you achieve goals, then naturally you just create more and more goals and, and you keep, you keep growing. Yeah. So, so I guess that 10,000 level goal, just take that for example, what would, what kind of, uh, how many doors or, or how much real estate, like asset wise, would you need to really ballpark get to, to get to that point? Well, I think that depends on, on what market you're in and what type of real estate you're investing into. So, um, so for me, um, I, I own about 180 doors right now. And those doors include a mobile home park. Um, they include a, an office building, um, uh, a 21 unit apartment, and then just a mix of single family, duplex, triplex, fourplex, fiveplex, six, seven, eightplexes, just kind of spread out all over the, the Wasatch front. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. But it's funny though, because the cash flow kind of changes, right? The whole idea of creating cash flow is to create lifestyle. Yeah. But then if you have a really good business that generates income, there's no need to live off cash flow. Yeah. So it's not like that was the liberating factor for me because it's not like I take cash flow from property then I put it in my personal checking and then I go live on it yeah yeah I, I don't I don't need the money which is also an empowering position because then it can just grow and then can use those funds to to buy more buy and hold properties yeah I was gonna say <clears throat> speaking about that um kind of obviously that that first duplex you said you bought I mean I'm guessing it was uh I don't know uh, uh personal mortgage that you got on the house, kind of like a, a standard, oh, yeah. whether it's F oh. FHA loan or whatever it was. Um, moving forward, did you, as that, as that um, evolved, as getting the money to purchase more rental properties evolved, what did that evolution look like for you? Uh, I know you said the second property that you bought with your friend, was that, did you go through personal loan that way too, or hard money lenders, or, or, or how did that evolve into what it is today? Good question. So I think I was just kind of scrappy, you know, like kind of go back to the conversation. I would just like go down a road and figure that one out and then go down another road and try that thing. For the first rental, I just got an FHA loan. I had to put 3% down. And in fact, I put 3% down on that. I bought my wife's wedding ring and I had like a thousand dollars left in my bank account. And I remember thinking, man, I hope my tenants pay me rent this month. Cause if they don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about eviction laws or how to do that. I was just like, like when you're, when you're naive, you're afraid of a lot of things. And uh -huh, yeah, and I was naive. <laughs> so then, so then for that first deal, my buddy borrowed money from his uncle. He gave us friendly terms. I don't remember what they were, but whatever percent, you know, for the time that we borrowed it and, um, for the fix and flip business, um, it has evolved, but that's kind of the model is, um, you know, I have, I have, um, private money lenders, um, and borrow money from those lenders. They their loan gets secured by the property with a, with the first position deed of trust. 
Um, and at any given time, I've got about uh, $10 million borrowed from private money investors right now. But that, I mean, from the beginning to now, it's certainly, you know, ebbed and flowed. Yeah. Changed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. And so uh, when you, does the interest rate that you give to different lenders, is that property specific? So let's say you have a, a new apartment building going to buy. Uh, do you say, these are, this is, these are the terms for this, for helping to loan on this property. Uh, we'll give you, you know, six or 7% uh, interest, or is it based off of the amount of money that they're willing to put in? Or, or how do you determine what that interest rate will be for those uh, hard money lenders? So it's set. So for the hard money lenders, and it's not even hard money kind of has the connotation of like points and a high interest rate. Yeah. These are private money loans from yeah. people that I've developed relationships with over the years. So mm-hmm. I pay them a 6% return and I borrow their money just for the fix and flip short-term uh-huh. properties. Yeah, For long-term buy and hold, I secure. I don't want to use their funds yeah. because I want to keep their funds moving with the fix and flip mm-hmm. properties. So for the, the longer-term buy and holds, uh, do you typically... Uh, pull out a mortgage on those? Are you like, are you like burring these? Do you typically burr these properties or, or how do you do that? Or do you put down a, a meaningful deposit or, or I guess it's a question so you of you can leverage. only get 10 loans. No, no, the, great question. This is, um, so with the Fannie and Freddie guidelines, you can only get 10 loans in your name personally. I only have two loans in my name. Um, so I've done a lot of seller finance notes. I've done a lot of mortgage takeovers, um, like a, a sub two is kind of how they're referred to where, um, for any of your listeners that may not know if a seller wants to sell a property and they have an underlying mortgage with a good interest rate and a good payment, I would much rather service their debt than go out and get a new loan in my name. And so that's referred to as sub two. Um, and then I've also partnered with probably got, I don't know, 20 or th- maybe 40 properties that I've got partners on where they put loans in, in their names as well. Now is all this through the business or, or like you own, like your business owns all of your rental properties and right. Or is it just why well, you own your business obviously, but do you put this all in the business name and then the business is its own entity and its own has its own cash reserves. Separate. Yeah. Yeah. They're separate entities. Yeah. So the fix and flip company, that's uh, that's its own LLC. I've got my S corp of course that I run my LLCs through, but then for my buy and hold company, that's its own LLC for different properties. They may have different LLCs. And then of course, with any partnerships that I have, they're separate LLCs. So you must have a, a good uh, lawyer friend or tax accountant. <laughs> I've got all three. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true though. I mean, you've got to, you've got to get, you've got to get the right people on your side to do it all correctly. But there again, though, it's one of those things that you just do it and you figure it out. And you don't get too hung up on, you know, protecting your liability or entity structure or any of these things that people sometimes get hung up on. Just just do it and buy it and put it in your own personal name and make it work and then quit claim it over into an LLC and figure out how to file your return with your CPA and, and you're running. Yeah. So, you know, we, we talked about a lot of different potential strategies and, and, and ways of going about doing it and, and lending and stuff like that. But if we take it back to the basics, how are you going about getting these specific leads? Um, you know, is there yeah. through, through MLS or through direct mail, direct or, mail or, or different ways? I mean, maybe with different uh, investing strategies with rentals or flips or whatever else, maybe it's different, but how do you get your leads? So, we have several different lead sources. So our, our marketing, my marketing spend per month is in the 40 to $50,000 range. So we have several different marketing channels that we use to generate those leads. So we do, we do direct mail. Um, we do some, some online campaigns. 
Um, we have um, runners that we call them runners that they, they deliver post-it notes door to door that say, we'll buy your house. Um, we've done TV commercials before. We're not currently doing those. Um, we've done, you know, Facebook ads, PPC, um, you know, any, any way that we can generate a lead, we are constantly experimenting and, and holding each campaign accountable to measure ROI to figure out if we should fuel that fire or if we should pull back and or end a campaign and and put our funds somewhere else so that it, it's continually evolving. I know a lot of real estate investors they buy lists and then they use that to either call cold call them. Uh, cold calling could be a huge strategy or, or direct mailing them. Do you use do you buy lists and do that? We do by list. Yeah. We also cold call. We also send text messages. Um, and we also create some of our own lists too. You know, these, these list providers that sell lists, by the time the list gets to you, it's pretty watered down and it's all data. Yeah. But, but it's better than nothing. I mean, if you're going to market in mass, then you've got to have the data to be able to, to market. If you're going to send out thousands of mailers each week, then you've got to have people to mail to. So it's, and it works. So so obviously to do a lot of that stuff, it seems like you kind of have to have a, a team behind you, right? It sounds like it takes a village to yeah. get a lot of this stuff done. Um, what would you suggest a, a strategy of a, a entry-level person would be? Um, you know, I guess fo- follow your initial strategy of just get a personal loan on something and, and go down that road. Or, or in today's day and age, in today's market, in 2021, how would you suggest somebody goes about getting started? So it depends on what that person is trying to do. Is this someone that is looking to do real estate full time or is it someone that is, has another career path, but they want to add real estate, you know, it's kind of a part-time or more of a passive thing. Cause for a lot of professionals, you know, it doesn't make sense to, to try and, learn and figure out a whole new career. I mean, there's a learning curve with this, just like there is if you want to get into any other profession, but you can easily invest passively. Um, So it kind of depends on what path they're trying to take. If it's someone that is, I think we're going with this, Ethan, if it's someone that is trying to break in and they want to do this full time, then I would suggest that that person, um, get all the education that they can get because there's so much good education right now that's free through podcasts and, and online resources, but then figure out a niche that you're going to do, do it yourself, and then strategically hire people as needed. I don't know if I'm yeah, you're, answering yeah. the question yeah, right here. You no, know, that's totally, that's a great question. I mean, it's kind of like what we're doing with our podcast right now. We're doing basically everything by ourselves right now. Uh, but as we yeah. begin to kind of ramp things up, we might, you know, have people start editing our YouTube videos and, and that way we don't have to do that. But doing it ourselves gives us that experience up front so we know how it's done. We know how it should be done. Uh, and then eventually when we get to the point where our time is more viable and other things, uh, yeah. we can hire that out and have someone else do that. Once you understand something really well, it becomes a lot easier to delegate that thing because then you can hold that person accountable and coach and train and um, make sure it's being done right. If it's something that you don't know about, it's tough to hire and, you know, expect that you're going to get the results that you're after. Yeah. Or even interviewing that person. It's if you don't know what you're talking about, then you won't know if they know what they're talking about. So that makes complete sense. hundred percent. hundred percent. And that's, you know, we keep throwing money at online SEO, Facebook, PPC, and every time it's just like beating my head against the wall because I don't understand that world. It always feels like I'm going down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's it. I mean, there are things that are just difficult to figure out. And of um, all those strategies, which one do you think works the best for you? I mean, where are your where are your where are your marketing dollars getting the best bang for their buck as of right now? SMS is probably our best bang for the buck. That's, um, that's text, text messages. I think it's got, uh, text messages. Yeah. Yeah. We send out, um, 
mass text messages. Um, I think it's only got a life of about three or four more months. They're putting some regulations in that are going to, they're going to put a stop to that. Um, that would be our number one hmm. right now as far as return. Well, what's number since that one's going to be out in, in another month or two, what's the second one? What's the second best return? <laughs> our second best return. Let's see. What would it be? So, so we don't have, we don't have campaigns that just consistently perform like on a week to week basis. Like when we have our, our, our weekly team meetings, we get a report of where all the leads are coming from, you know, in our marketing meeting and we're looking at those. And so we can see by campaign, how many leads each campaign produce in one week, we might get high leads from one campaign, but the next, it might be low. So because we have six or seven different channels, we get a consistent output of leads, but it's not very predictable. Um, so, so one month we might say, Oh, well, ROI on that campaign is through the roof, but then for the next two months, it doesn't perform. It's, it's kind of one of those things that it's just, in some ways, Ethan and Jared, I feel like I'm as much of a marketing company as I am a real estate company yeah, because totally. it's all about the leads. Like, I mean, once you get the leads, you have to know what to do with them, of yeah. course, and you have to have your people and processes there. But if you can't generate leads, you don't have a business. Totally. So it, it, it's a constant experiment. So to answer your question, Jared, I'd say number two, um, you know, we still get a good return from direct mail. Um, that's list dependent, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a good return from, we do recorded voice messages too. Yeah. We get a good return from that. Um, you know, we, we have some niche lists that we, that we market to, the, um, like probate, um, a notice of default, um, some of those specific lists. They're, they're not very big lists, so it's not like you could scale them, but um, some of those have a good return. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. Cool. No, that's I got great, a great answer. I, I wish I had like a, <laughs> no. That's a great answer. An easy button answer here, but it really isn't. So. Yeah, okay. and like you said, month to month, it probably differs as well. Um, I I got a a letter in the mail, uh, probably two days ago, and it was like you know, uh, Ethan Thomas, you know, yada yada yada, said a bunch of stuff. It's like we'd be willing to buy your house for X amount cash right now, and it was just like if I was. And and it was it was a decent amount, and I was like, well, if I was uh, looking to sell my house, and I wanted to get out, you know, get get something moving quick, or or you know, kind of make it an easier process, then I was like, oh, maybe I'd consider something like that. But I mean, I'm not looking to move, but <laughs> or send something that looks like a fake check, and it's like, here's a fake check for three hundred, you know, sixty five thousand yeah, dollars. You want to buy? You're like, oh my gosh, I could just take this right to the bank. <laughs> Some of them do that. And people know too. I mean, direct mail, it's, it's difficult. And there's a lot of nuance just on that campaign alone. You know, I mean, you can split test different copy to different lists with different color mailers from a postcard to an envelope to, you know, it's a, yeah, just that by itself. There, it's there's a whole a science. lot to it, you yeah. know, and, and, and most of it just doesn't produce ROI by yeah. the way. Hmm. So I've, I've never, I shouldn't say I've never heard. I have seen before where someone just makes like blanket offers, you know, pulled from tax data or how are they figured out where they auto input your name and property address and whatever valuation formula that they throw at you. Um, I'd be surprised if that campaign gave them a, a good return, but who yeah. knows? Yeah, because yeah. you don't know if the inside of that house is absolutely trashed or what, or if the people have smoked and the house just needs total overhaul. So it's probably it's probably subject to appraisal or sub, subject to inspection or you know all kinds of different stuff they do. Yeah, and they're just totally taking a stab. I mean, they have no idea what the value even is. They have no idea if you have an addition or a finished basement or a view or you know any type of thing that, that seriously impacts value. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick break and say thank you for listening to this episode and invite you to support us on Patreon. As a loyal supporter, you will get exclusive access to two additional episodes per month, which are not released to the public. You can find the link to our Patreon page in the episode description. Let's get back to the show. So uh, I was going to ask, Matt, so you have these three different businesses, wholesaling, flipping, rentals. 
uh, and we just talked a little bit about your funnel, uh, which is all the marketing that you do, which is really said like half the business. You know, it's kind of reminds me of like McDonald's where Ray Kroc says, we're not in the burger business, we're in the real estate business. <laughs> and that's kind yeah. of like with you, you're like, well, you're, you do real estate, but really you're in the marketing business because getting that right. sales funnel is so important. So when you get, maybe they'll walk us through from uh, the start of the sales funnel, a property, what that might look like, and then how that might trickle down to, well, should we should we wholesale this? And like what the attributes might look like for a wholesale. And then should we flip yeah. this? And then should we keep this? Uh, and what the decisions you make there? Great question. Yeah. So, so almost all of the deals that we do there, we call them off market deals, meaning they're not on the MLS. We're not buying from the courthouse steps. They're people that are generated from our marketing and they call in to our, we call them an ILM, our intake lead manager. And he answers the phone and his responsibility is to build rapport with that caller to find out the property details and to set an appointment for one of my sales guys to meet with them. So he inputs all of their information into our CRM. It gets pushed over to whatever sales guy he assigns it to. He assigns leads on a round robin basis. I've got three different sales guys. So he pushes it over to our, our sales guys are called acquisition managers. He pushes it over to them. Uh, through the CRM, they call and do follow-up. They might have an appointment set um, and their job is to get that contract. They do their own evaluation of the property based on the conversations and the information that they gather. They can pull up tax data. They can look at Google Street View. They might go walk the property with a seller, but they determine what the fixed up value of that property is um, within 10 or 20 grand, um, you know, depending on purchase price. Yeah. And then once they know what the fixed up value is, then they can back into that number and figure out what we need to pay in order to make money on it. So if the fixed up value is 500,000 and his estimate for repairs is 20,000 based on what the seller is saying, it needs carpet and paint and a few this and that, um, then he can back out real estate costs um, or, or, or real estate commission costs and title fees and our holding costs when we borrow money from our private lenders. He can back out a, 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 the profit margin that we need to make and then he can come up with, hey, we got to offer, we got to be at 380 or less on this property, whatever the numbers are. Yeah. And then he gets that contract. So once he gets the contract, then it gets pushed over to our um, to our construction manager. She sets an appointment with that seller and she does a walkthrough. And when she walks through that property, she measures the square footage to make sure that it's the same square footage as what's on tax data and aligns with the same that the seller is, is telling us. She puts together a scope of work to figure out what the cost is going to be to take it to rehab so that we can sell it for that full after repair value price, 500 in this case. She again builds rapport with the seller. Um, she does a, a meth test, methamphetamine test at the property, because that's important information for us to know. Oh yeah. And she takes a walkthrough video of the property as well. She once she goes through her process, then she pushes all that over to my dispositions manager. And he now has all of the information to evaluate that property to figure out what our actual costs are going to be and what his ARV actually is. So the sales guy, the, the acquisitions manager, he might say it's worth 500. When he gets to my disposition guy, he might say, well, it's worth 480. He might say it's worth 520. But he can determine that based on the walkthrough video and you know, other research that, that he's doing. And then yeah. he can back out the cost because he has all of the information from the construction manager. So once that happens, then he determines, do we wholesale this or do we buy this and list this as is on the MLS without fixing it? Or do we fix this up and sell it to a retail buyer? And we have a formula that we use. We send out everything to our wholesale list first. 
if we can't reach our margin, then it moves to option B or option C. So you send it to your your wholesaler and you say, hey, if it doesn't meet your margins, you say, okay, we just need to dump this and maybe have someone else get it. Uh, you know, you make make a smaller or a different margin on your wholesale. Uh, otherwise, you fix it up, sell it. What what's the decision and where you want to keep it and say, oh, we want to keep this because of the and rent it. Like where does that? Um, would it just the rents in that area are really high, or it's a good rental area? I guess it depends on the the property as well. Purchase price? Are there terms? Is it a seller finance deal? Um, you know, I, I kind of look at that independently because it's a separate company, right, from the fix and flip company. So I kind of look at those independently, and I determine, hey, is that is that one that I want to grab to buy and hold long term? That's kind of that's just kind of a, a separate decision that that I make on those. So. As far as if we wholesale or if we take them retail, right now the market is so hot and our wholesale buyers list is so good that we make 70 to 80% of the margin on a wholesale deal, meaning that we're going to make 70 to 80% of the money if we wholesale it versus taking it to to retail on our own. And that's... I mean, when you're doing what you're 70, 80 percent, and that's happening quickly, you're just like, "Hey, we're done." You come in with cash, you buy this. That's a quick transaction with people who are also professionals, as opposed to doing it, selling at retail. You're making the extra 20 percent, but it's a longer process. You have people that are pulling out mortgages, so it's almost like more cumbersome to sell retail if you're able to if your wholesale market is so hot and giving you that much of a margin, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, and for those listeners that don't know what wholesaling is, wholesaling is basically just, it's a simple transaction. Let's say you, Ethan, you are going to buy a property from Jared and your contract price is $100,000. You have that contract, now you can wholesale that contract. So you say, hey, Matt, I've got this property. How much are you going to pay me for it? I say, well, Ethan, I'll pay 120 for it. Then as the buyer... I go into the title company with my cash and I perform. So you don't have to, you don't have to do any type of, you know, borrowing or bringing in your own funds um, to close this deal. The title company simply just takes the 120 from me as the as the buyer, kicks you your 20, kicks the seller their 100, and you're done. Sounds like a super simple process. <laughs> it is actually. Yeah, it's, it's very simple. So the, and I mean, you guys know the market's red hot right now. So, yeah. so the, the real, the real advantage to being in, you know, where you can control leads and you can generate leads on your own is that you control inventory. And when you have inventory in a market like this, then you have wholesale buyers that will pay you a premium for that property because they can't find property on their own. They want to, they want to be a real estate professional. They want to do it on the side and do their thing, but they don't have any inventory. So as an inventory supplier, they're going to pay you a premium because there's, there's 10 rehabbers to every one wholesaler or I mean, whatever the numbers are. There's, there's a lot more rehabbers to wholesalers, right? Are you, are you, do you ever buy um, properties from someone who's wholesaling? Not very often, but on occasion, I actually just bought a rental uh, in February from another wholesaler. Hmm. Yeah, on occasion, I mean, for me, it's I don't care where the deal comes from. I just I just want the deal. So, um, in a way, a wholesaler that doesn't have a very good buyers list, they're they're a pretty motivated seller. Like they've got to they've got to sign that contract in a hurry, right? So. In some cases, it makes sense to 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 be the buyer on those uh, wholesale deals. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Let's say we go back to the example: if I'm buying a property from Jared for a hundred thousand dollars, and you know it's it's a good deal, you know maybe it's worth one twenty, like you said, but I don't have a a buyer's list, and so I'm sitting on this deal. You know, I told Jared I'd pay him a hundred thousand dollars, and I'm sitting on this deal, and I can't, I, I don't have anybody to sell it to. What happens if you get stuck? I mean. 
obviously you could probably back out, but that's, you don't know if you have like due diligence money or whatever else. I mean, what's the potential risk there if you can't sell it? So most wholesalers are going to have a due diligence period. We always do. Um, we, if it's a deal we know we're going to do, we'll put up hard earnest money um, so that the seller knows we're, that we're going to perform or we're going to lose our thousand or 5,000 or whatever earnest money we put up. Um, but yeah, there, there's a, a due diligence period typically. So, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a risk with it. That one of the things that we're really good at is we're really good at wholesaling. So we scrape all of the data. So we know who the, who the cash buyers are in our market. So we, and we, and we continually scrape that. So if a, maybe not as of an experienced wholesaler tries to wholesale, let's say the same deal. He's got a contract for a, for a hundred. He might call, have 10, 20, 30 good contacts to wholesale that deal. He might sell that deal for 125 and be able to make 25. But if we have that same deal, we're probably going to be able to move that contract for 140 or 150 because we, we, we have the buyers um, that we're continually cultivating. Interesting. Uh, very interesting. Um, well, I had another question I was going to ask you. Go ahead, Ethan. Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of have some questions around uh, flipping. So let's say you, you get into a house, you, you get a good deal um, on, a, on a property, and if you were to invest some um, some money into fixing it up, then obviously it's going to have a, a, a better potential sell-off um, when it gets to that point. So do you, I'm guessing you have like a group of contractors or general contractor that you work with for the majority of those local flips. Is that how you do it or? Yeah, we do. So earlier I mentioned our construction manager. Her title is actually our asset manager and she has five general contractors that she project manages. So at any given time, those general contractors are anywhere within an hour of our, of our office working on our, our flip properties. So in our pipeline right now, we've got about 40 projects, um, you know, that, that are, they're at any phase. They might be under contract to a retail buyer. We might have just purchased it and we're waiting for a tenant to move out, or they might be under construction, right? So it's any phase. We've got about 40 in inventory. So of the ones that are under construction, we've got those five general contractors that are, that are working on those properties and trying to, trying to help us move them forward. I, I remembered my question. So, you, you know, one of the things you talk about is that you're doing a lot of flips and fix flips or uh, wholesales, but really the market, like we mentioned before, the market is so hot right now. I, I would almost, it's you, one could argue that a strategy is just buy up as much real estate as you possibly can and then Absolutely. just hold it until the, because the market, I mean, the market could be giving you, a buy and hold could be giving you a better margin than your than if you were to just then your profit margin on a on a you know two month flip would be. So how do you balance that between like if you find a good property and you're like oh this is in a great neighborhood a great city uh you know we can flip it we can flip it and sell it right now or we could flip it and if we sell it six months from now it'll be worth thirty thousand dollars more. I mean how do you balance that? Well. It's, it's kind of a measure of how willing you are to speculate. Yeah, um, exactly. I guess I'm not much of a speculator. You know, if, if, if I don't have funds behind me, I'm not the guy that's going to borrow private money or hard money and just hold property and hope the market keeps going. Um, I, I survived 07, 08 and, uh, I can tell you what, there's a lot of stress that comes along with it a market yeah. that turns when you're not ready for it. Um, yeah. However, for the properties that the numbers do make sense, I'm definitely a buyer. Um, and I, I try and buy um, two or three properties a month to hold on to. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very bullish with the market in my backyard and, um, you know, by all indications, Things are going to keep going, and if they don't, I'm okay too. You know, because I've got rentals, I've got cash flow, and um, I'm I'm comfortable. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a speculation guy where I'm buying to move it in a year and 
and make the the that exchange. You know, yeah. I'm I'm a I'm a ten year plus guy. Yeah, for sure. Um, so obviously. Well, I kind of have two questions that are separate but similar. Um, so, so one question was, you know, you just said that you're a, kind of potentially a buy and hold 10, 10 plus years if you can with, with the rental properties and stuff like that. Obviously, if you're doing, uh, and I'm sure there's there's tax advantages to holding properties for longer periods of time. Um, right. Whenever you're doing fix and flips, uh, I, I know I know maybe on a personal nature you have, uh, if you flip it within the first year, you have some sort of short-term capital gain tax that you're dealing with that could potentially be higher than if you were to hold it for longer than that. Uh, do you run into that in in the business, or is it just kind of part of the numbers that you put into a deal, you know, that we're going to pay X amount of taxes on this whenever we sell it in the short term? You know, my strategy is I just don't pay taxes. <laughs> That's a great strategy. I'm just, I'm, I'm just <laughs> Uh, tell me, the, uh, let's yeah, listen, yeah, another episode about yeah, that. Yeah, I just want to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually got audited three years ago, and it was it was horrible. It was brain damage, man. And I felt like I was doing everything right. I felt like my CPA, my bookkeeper, I felt like I had things in order. And man, being audited, that's gonna that's a reality check. Like that makes you reevaluate your business model and your accounting methods um and so forth so so for me it's actually not a capital gain because i'm a real estate professional so it's actually earned income um is is how i pay taxes so so as far as um i think what you're asking here is is tax strategy so what i'm doing to insulate myself from having to pay exorbitant taxes is I'm buying properties from, so my buy and hold company is buying properties from my fix and flip company rather than realizing that gain. I just take that as equity. Um, so anything that I buy and hold, it's, you know, most of it's going to come from my fix and flip company. So, um, the other thing that I'm doing is um, I do cost segregations. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with those, but that's basically where you can escalate depreciation. So typically when you have, when you own real estate, residential is different than commercial, but it's depreciated over a period of 27 and a half years, which actually doesn't make any sense because the life of much of the material that you have in real estate doesn't last 27 and a half years. For an example, a, a water heater or carpet or you know, there's things they, yeah. they've got a life of three, five, eight, 10, 12 years. So a cost segregation, it's a study that's done. There's actually companies that will come in and do a study on the property for you. And they'll say, okay, all of these materials related to the property, you can depreciate these over a five-year period. And these you can depreciate over an eight-year period. And so it, it escalates your, your depreciation. And then with the, with the tax law changes under Trump, Anything, any real estate purchase after September of 2017, you can actually get 100% depreciation on. So um, those are my two strategies is cost segregation and buying and holding from the fix and flip company and not realizing the gain. Yeah, very interesting. So like like what you said is that when you're buying from your buy and hold, you're buying from your fix and flip, that way the purchase from your fix and flip that is simply coming in as equity, which you, you don't have to pay taxes on that, and right. it's and it's not coming in as profit. And then that's uh, that's uh, very very smart, <laughs> very good. So so and and then with that buy and hold property, then I can do a cost segregation on it, and yeah. then I can then I can escalate the depreciation, and that helps offset some of the the gain that the fix and flip company provides. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of what, and I guess for, as far as cost segregation goes, you, you don't probably don't have to be, I know you said you, you are a, a real estate professional. Um, does that, does that mean you, do you have to be a real estate agent to be a real estate professional? What, what kind of makes you a real uh, estate professional? Yeah. So that it's just designated by the hours of week that you work, okay. um, in the industry. 
So if someone is a, a full-time, you know, general doctor, it's going to be hard for them to claim that they're a real estate professional working 40 plus hours a week. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the second part of my question, yeah, the second part of my question that I had, we were talking about, uh, uh, long-term or, or buy and hold type rentals. Do you have a property management company that you, or do you manage your own, uh, rentals? How does that, you said you had 108 work? rentals or something like that. Doors. How do you, or doors? How many, how do you do all that? Manage it. So that that's managed internally. So, um, I have a, a bookkeeper that splits time between the buy and hold company and the fix and flip company. She helps do some of the property management. And then I also have a property manager um, that works directly for me that, of course, follows my processes and manages the way that I, that I want my properties managed. Um, so it's not only is it less expensive, but more importantly, it protects my assets much, much better. Um, you know, a tenant can do a lot of damage to a property if, if left unchecked. And mm-hmm. with the with the amount of property that I have, it's important to me to kind of keep my finger on the pulse. Yeah, it makes it makes sense to keep that in house, and to I mean, you probably save a little bit too by keeping it in house. Yeah, most management companies are going to charge you eight to ten percent of your gross rents. Um, my cost for my management, it's right around four percent of gross rents. So it's, it's pretty significant, but, but it's also hands-on. It requires some of my time and we have a, a weekly meeting and you know, there's some other things related to that. So. so, so Matt, your position, you're kind of at the, this is your company, right? You and I think you and a partner or, or at least maybe one other partner, you're at the helm of all this. Or what exactly do you do to keep all this running? Are you just kind of managing different things and stuff that boils up you deal with, or, or what is your role in all this moving parts? Yeah, so I, I don't have I don't have a partner in the fix and flip business, and most of my rentals I own on my own. I okay. do have a couple of partners that I own some some rentals with. Um, so my part is we have a, our organizational chart. So in the fix and flip company, there's there's I think we've got I think we've got sixteen employees. Um, so so I've got a a COO that. Um, runs a lot of things for me. Um, and then I've got my department heads that, you know, are responsible for what they do. And then they, of course, we have our, we follow a, a system. Uh, it's the EOS system. Um, it's like a, an entre, it's an entrepreneur operating system is what it stands for. There's a book uh, called Traction written by Gino Wickman. And it's kind of his process that he outlays and, um, that process consists of weekly meetings where certain things are done and where certain KPIs or key performance indicators are reported by each team member. And um, so it's all kind of structured that way. So things get reported to me and, um, and and we've got really good processes too, you know, so there's, I really don't have a whole lot of stress right now. I mean, despite the volume of deals that we're doing on a monthly basis, because we've got really good organizational structure and more importantly, really, really great people on my team. That's awesome. You gotta have good people or else the whole thing just falls apart. Uh, so (laughs) that's awesome. And it's just incredible how you can manage all that and, and be on top of it. But really, if you have good people in place, it becomes much easier to manage all those moving pieces. 100%. 100%. And good people get, that gets talked about a lot, you know, but as much as it gets talked about, I don't think it gets talked about nearly enough because having the right people on your team is so critical. And that the good team members are just, they are, it sounds cliche, but man, they are invaluable. In fact, I'll, I'll share this with you guys. So last March was the, the COVID scare. And of course, as any other business at the time, I was panicked, um, wondering what the repercussions were going to be and how that was going to impact the real estate market. Um, 
we had a lot of property in our, in our inventory. Like I mentioned earlier, I survived the, the 08 crisis. So for me, it was kind of this, okay, how are we going to get through this? So for about a two-week period, we figured out how to reduce every possible expense that we could and how we could quickly liquidate all of the, the, the properties that we, that we owned that were in our current inventory. So during that time, I was having talks with my management team. I had three different people on my team came to me during that time and they said, hey, Matt, I don't need to take a salary. Like either they either said, don't pay me or just pay me when you're ready to pay me, when the company's ready to pay me again. We're going to make it through this. Yeah. And for me, that was like this lifeboat moment. I was like, hey, I've got, I know I've got the right people that that I'm in the trenches with when they come to me and they're they're that committed and they're that dedicated and and that selfless. I mean very cool. So to yeah. circle back to people, it's invaluable to have the right people on your team. Yeah. People that are invested in the cause and really what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. And they have the belief in in you and in the company that you're running because they know that I mean, they all knew we were going to make it. We didn't know how at that point, but, but but we know that we're good. We know that we're good at figuring things out. We know that we're resourceful and we're efficient. And it was a matter of time. We just didn't know how rough it was going to get, but yeah. we were going to figure it out. And they knew that too. Yeah, man, there's been a lot of information in in this episode. Uh, you know, it, it might seem like we've bounced around a lot, but uh, with a lot of the different questions, but I think it, it all kind of, boils down uh into to just you know one great strategy of educate yourself and um you know do what works best for you in your specific situation um but thank you matt for for taking your time to yes. to answer these questions with us and 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 as always and as our first uh repeat uh guest here on the podcast i know we we already asked you this question one time but um, we always ask our guests about their personal creed. Uh, a creed is a set of beliefs or aims that guides someone's actions and how they live their life. Um, would you be able to to share a, an additional portion of your creed with us? Definitely. Yeah. Do everything you can to help your friends succeed. So, there's a book written by Bob Bodine. It's called The Power of Who. And in that book, he kind of goes against the grain of what we're seeing today where, you know, I've got like, I don't know, I don't even know, a couple thousand Facebook friends or, I mean, I'm, you guys do too. Like, I'm not online much, but I know there's like LinkedIn connections and yeah. we're all about networking and, um, you know, the the power is in your network and you're only as good as your network. And he kind of goes against that. He says the power in order for you to create the life that you want and to fulfill your dreams, you already have the contacts to do that. And those contacts come through your very best friends and the people that are the closest to you. So one make friends and two, do everything you can to help your friends be successful. That's great advice. Uh, I, I like that. I think that having 500 superficial LinkedIn contacts doesn't really do you any good, but having four or five solid relationships with people that you can call and say, hey, you know, how's it going? Uh, that can be so beneficial. And, and just having friends that you can talk to and bounce ideas off of, uh, that's just so important. I, I totally, you know, that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of a quote. Uh, it's, it says something along the lines of, you know, strong people don't, don't break other people down. They lift them up. And, um, you mm -hmm. know, I think, I think sometimes we're the ones that can do the lifting. And then I think other times maybe we're the ones that need to be lifted, uh, in, in all aspects. Um, but I, I, I love that. Love that. What you said. Well, and we kind of have this pride thing too, where we don't want to ask for help. 
And maybe we're even reluctant to ask those that are the best suited and the closest to us to ask for help. But, you know, for me, the way that I look at it with the people that I'm closest to, don't rob me the joy of being able to help you when you need it. Yeah. Because so much joy comes from helping, especially helping people that we love. Yeah. Well, Matt, speaking of that, you know, we, we really appreciate you coming on, on today and I, you shared such great advice yeah. and for us, it's been beneficial to me and Ethan and hopefully to our listeners as well. I think that you just have so much wisdom to share and so much good experience that it's going to bless whoever hears this. So uh, again, thank you so much. We want to be respectful of your time, but, uh, you know, thanks. And for all those who, who are listening, uh, we appreciate you listening today and, uh, you can follow us on Instagram and, uh, let's build that creed together. All right, let's do it. Thanks, Matt. Okay, sounds good, guys. Thanks a ton.